1 Samuel chapter 30. Let me bring everybody up to speed as the kids leave, particularly in, in where we are chronologically in this story. The soon-to-be-anointed king, the word anointed, remember, is the word Christ. The soon-to-be-anointed king, David, has been on the run. We're at chapter 30. He's been on the run for several chapters. Because the first king of Israel, Saul, has been trying to take David out. He's been unsuccessful. But David, as we've seen before, he had two occasions to actually take the Lord's anointed king Saul out, but he didn't. He chose to obey God. He chose not to harm the Lord's anointed. Saul is still king. In chapter 27, while David's on the run, he finds himself at a place of no return. He can't go home, back to Israel, because Saul is trying to kill him. He can't go home to his wife, can't go home to his close friend Jonathan. He's not safe there. So where does he go? David finds himself going to the land of the Philistines, the armies, excuse me, the enemies of God. And some commentators think that David is just being foolish and stupid and going to the enemy camp to, to find refuge. And other commentators say, what else could he do? What other choice did he have? I'll let you to be that, you make that decision yourself. I, I'm not quite sure, but he really had no place to go. And while he's in the Philistine city known as Gath, the enemies of God, he's taking refuge there. They, the king of Gath, Akesh, gives him a piece of property, if you remember. The property is called Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G. And he becomes chummy, kind of friendly with the king there. You remember, Gath, if you remember, is in, is in enemy territory. Gath is the city of Goliath. Goliath is the guy that David took out with a stone and a sling and then took his own sword, Goliath's sword, and chopped his head off. That's their guy. That's their champion. And now David is there. And while David is there, he's in Ziklag, David makes several raids on different communities and tells the king, Achish of Gath, the enemy of God, that he is raiding his own people, Israel. He's deceiving the king. Meanwhile, he's raiding and taking property and things of the allies of the Philistines. He would destroy everything. Remember, David goes in and destroys everything because if you destroy everything, there's no evidence. He's deceiving the king. He doesn't want the king to know what he's doing. King Achash is fooled, the king of Gath. And in chapter 28, verses 1 through 1 and 2, chapter 28, 1 and 2, the king assembles his men, the Philistine army, against Israel. The king assembles his armies against Israel, and he tells David, come with me. I will make you my bodyguard, chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. I'll make you my bodyguard. We're going to attack Israel, and I want you with me. You've been faithful to me for over a year, and I want you with me. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 2. And at this point, we saw a couple of weeks ago, The narrator stops, verse 2 of chapter 28, and tells the story of King Saul's last evening on earth. Remember? King Saul sees the armies of the Philistines coming toward him, and he's afraid. He seeks God. God doesn't answer him. He hits rock bottom, and he runs and seeks guidance from a witch. Not his wife. 
Some of you will catch that, some of you won't. That's okay. A medium, a channeler of the dead, of Endor. Chapter 28, verse 3 to 25. The narrator just pulls this story out of the chronological order and tells about the story. And if you remember, God allows this medium to, to bring up Samuel, and Samuel tells Saul what he already told him. Chapter 28, verse 17. Saul is seeking guidance from a medium. She brings up Samuel, and Samuel tells him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. I've already told you this. He's torn the kingdom. You didn't listen. You were supposed to destroy the Amalekites. You didn't do it. The kingdom's torn from you, and he's given it to David. Verse 19 of chapter 28. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons, Samuel is telling Saul, you and your sons will be with me. In other words, you will be dead tomorrow. That's chapter 28, verse 3 through the end. The story of Saul's visit with Endor starts in 28.3, it ends in chapter 28 at the end, and then chronologically picks up in chapter 31 next week. Okay? And as Pastor Ricky did a great job last week, mentioned that chapter 29 picks up after verse 2 of chapter 28, right before this hiatus of Saul, and continues the story of David. Now, last week, and I'll explain a little bit further. Last week we had this map, and I want to do it again with you. So, in chapter 27, there's Gath. That's where Achish is, the enemy of God in the Philistines. Ziklag is where David has given, been given a piece of property in chapter 27. In chapter 28, the armies are in Shunem and Gilboa. Okay? Jezreel and, and uh, excuse me, and Aphek come in chapter 29. So this is what's happening. And I need you to see this. David, in chapter 27, and then in chapter 29, is going with the king of the Philistines north from Gath to Aphek. It's in Aphek that the Philistine army, along with the king, said to David, come on, we're going to fight. We're going to head to Jezreel, and we're going to take out the Israelites. Chapter 29, Ricky covered it last week. They're in Aphek. The commanders of the army see what's going on in Aphek. They see David and his men, and the Philistine army commanders go, who is this guy, David? We know him. That's the Israelite. We're not going to war with him. The king's like, oh, he's been faithful to me. They're like, well, I don't care what he's been to you. We know David, and when we get there, when we go from Aphek to Jezreel to attack Israel, he's going to turn on us. He's probably right. Achish is fooled. But Achish submits to the commanders, which is a wise thing to do, who run the armies of the cities of the Philistines, and says to David, listen, I know you've been faithful to me, but you can't come with us to Jezreel, from Aphek to Jezreel. You can't come. This is what you do. Go home. Go from Aphek back down to Ziklag. Because the commanders of the army don't trust you. And David's like, okay. Chapter 29, verse 10. The king says, rise early in the morning, David. Your servants, go. Start out in the morning. Depart as soon as you have light. Chapter 29, verse 11. David set out from Aphek with his men in the early morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So you see what's going on. David's headed South, back home, the Philistines are headed from Aphek to attack Israel. Now, the, 
the reason why I spent so much time telling you that is you need to see that as the Philistines are heading north to Jezreel to attack the Israelites and David is sent home, it is the same time that Saul is in Endor. Catch that? It's very possible that as David is, is you'll see in a moment, has, has this dilemma and he starts seeking God and fighting the armies of God's people, the enemies of God's people. Saul is seeking a medium at night and being destroyed the next day by the enemies of God of Gilboa. It's going on at the same time. The contrast, the narrator wants you to see this contrast. David will show himself as one who's been touched and transformed by the grace of God, seeking the face of God. At the same time, Saul has never repented, has not turned his face toward God, but actually at the same time, going to seek a witch in violation of the Torah, of the law of God. This is what's going on. So after David has lied, deceived the king, the king sends him home, David is, is, is rescued by, by the providence of God, by the commander saying, we don't want this guy. Because David was, you understand, David was told and asked to go and fight with the Philistines to kill his own people. They go home. And David now, in chapter 30, has left Aphek, is headed to Ziklag. The Israelites have left, Aphek, excuse me, the Philistines have left Aphek, and they're headed north to Jezreel to attack Israel. Everybody following me? Hope I did a good job. Hope you followed me along that along it well. So that's the story, okay? And now when David gets home, we'll see three things in our text in, in chapter 30. Hold on, this is bouncing around again on me. Okay, number one. David get home and he'll find a depleted city, a devastated city. Number two, David will come and he will defeat his enemies. The defeated enemy. And finally, the divided spoil. So that's where we're at. Now, David is on his way home. He's on his way home. You can imagine David leaving Aphek, getting out of this conundrum that he's in, is headed home now with his four, 600 men, and he's got to be laughing. They've got to be laughing to one another, saying, man, we got out of that mess. Man, that Achaz the king, that fool, he believed that we were actually going to fight our own people. Like... You fooled him, David. Like, he really thought you were on his side. Achish, in chapter 21, same king of Gath, is the one who saw David scratching at the door, remember that? And acting crazy and insane and drooling on his beard. Like, get this lunatic out of here. We've got enough crazy people around here. That's Achish. So they're on their home going, man, we're glad we got out of this mess. Or possibly they're talking one another on this three-day journey, and they're saying, man, that was close. That was close. I mean, Akash bought all in, but those five commanders said, we don't want you there. They could have just turned on us, David. And, and they're thousands. They would, they would have took us out. Um, man, I'm glad we got out of there alive. And they're headed home, three days home. Have you ever been away from home? My wife and I have just been away for a, a couple of weeks just to get away. It, it, it's nice to get away. It's always nice to go home, though, isn't it? Sleep in your own bed. You're like, ah, I want to be home. It's nice to get home. It's nice to go to a place where you feel comfortable and safe. Unless, of course, when you get there, everything you love, all that you treasure is completely destroyed. David gets home, verse 1. And his men come to Ziklag on the third day. 
The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. Imagine the scene. And taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. All their wives, or their children, their sons and daughters, taken captive. Now, family, this is not a fantasy story. This is not a movie. This is historical fact. No town, no families. And all this already suffering that David has been through, he's got quite a life so far. It seems that the bottom has actually dropped out. The Amalekites... David had already at one point, chapter 27, verse 8, David had attacked the Amalekites. Some of them obviously knew that the Philistines and David himself were away. And they took this time of, of David's absence to retaliate against them in the Negev and Ziklag. And according to the custom of that day, they went in and they took hostages. It wasn't like they didn't kill anyone because they were just being nice. Let's not kill anybody. They, they seem like nice people. no. They were taking hostages. They were taking them to be slaves. They were going to sell the children, sell the boys and girls, sell the wives into misery and slavery. That's what they used to do. It was a moneymaker for the Amalekites. Now remember, the narrator is telling us what happened. David is just walking into the city. He's not sure. All he sees when he gets there is fire. Burnt everything to the ground. He's not sure exactly what is going on. Think about it. One commentator wrote this. Sometimes he says, you are tempted to add another line to Psalm 30, verse 5, which says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And disaster adds, and disaster strikes next afternoon. So when someone comes and says, this is your best life now, tell them to read the story of David. Now, the man after God's own heart walks into this disastrous situation. And look what he does, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept. They wept until they had no more strength to weep. Here's David leading his men into a wailing, weeping, broken place. Sobbing. Weeping like they've never wept before. These, these tough guys, these, these hombres, these killers, these men who went on raids are weeping like children, crying and sobbing with no release in sight. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had disaster strike, pain and hurt overwhelm you? unbearable. Welcome to real life. That's the Bible for you. Talk about real life. The men can handle almost anything. A loss of material things, no big thing, but everything, everyone, even David's wives, verse 5, taken captive, Ahinoam, Jezreel, and Abigail. Abigail, the widow, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, beautiful Abigail, both beautiful inside and outside, the woman of faith, taken hostage. Look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. Mark that. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, soul, each for his own sons and daughters. And I'll add, and wives, even though they're not there. I'm sure they were. I mean, 
You come home, you find your city burnt to the ground. You find everything in disaster. Your wives, your children, everything gone. And like it can't get any worse than that, your own people go, you know what? Let's kill you. You know what? You're responsible. Listen, you took us to the raids. You took us here. You went to Aphek. I mean, this is your fault, David. Now we come home. We're not just, we're not even sure about, never mind your leadership skills. We don't know if you should live. And they want to stone him to death. One minute they want to fight him. Next minute they want to kill him. That's what David finds when he returns home from the valley rather than go to the valley of Jezreel. And what's very interesting, look at the text. When it says David was greatly distressed, it is around the same time, as I said, that Saul's in Endor. Saul is in Endor. He's calling up Samuel, and Samuel tells him, why did you bring me up? And Saul answers, I am in great distress. The Lord's not answering me. You have Saul who's in great distress because the Lord's not answering him. And you have David who's in great distress, the same Hebrew term, because his family has been destroyed. Both of them are facing disaster. Both of them are facing distress. Both of them facing hopelessness. David slipping away from multiple hits on his life, having his men try to take him out. But here is the contrast again. Verse 6b. The difference between King Saul, who ran to get guidance from a witch, a medium, who never repented, and David, the man God has changed by grace. It says, David, though, was strengthened. Look, 6b. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David put his trust in God's promises. David put his trust in God's promises and the purposes for his life. You know how I know that? There's another time that it says in Samuel that David was strengthened in the Lord. You remember? It's in chapter 23. Saul is going after David and Jonathan, his covenant friend, steps in and it says that he, Jonathan took David's hand and strengthened it Put it in the hands of God. It was Jonathan who said, here, David, put your hand in God's hand. You know how he did it? Chapter 23, verse 17, he says, Jonathan says to David, do not fear, for the hand of my father Saul won't find you. You shall be king over Israel. You know the promise that God made to you, David? It's going to happen. I know you think your life is going to be taken, but you know what? You could trust the promises of God. That's how, he says, you, emphatic, will be king. You can trust. And Jonathan tells David, be strengthened in the Lord by remembering his promises. And I believe that's exactly what David is doing here. He's remembering the promises of God. He's remembering what God has said. There's a difference between just letting go emotionally here, let uh, let go and let God. I get that. There's a difference between letting go emotionally and just releasing emotions and strengthening yourself in the Lord. Your emotions, as you release them, there's a sense where you have to strengthen yourself in the promise of God. It is yielding, it is relying, it is trusting, it is placing your unwavering faith into what God has 
said. God's word and God's character will be your strength, my strength. David, David can't say my home, my wife, my stuff, my kids, but he can say my God. You see, theology says God exists. Theology says there is a God. Theosology, the study of God, says God exists. Personal relationship with God says my God. And that's what David is saying. Look what he says. Himself in the Lord, his God. His God. That's where the strength comes from. Saul, he's in Endor. The promise he's waiting for is what's been told to him. The the kingdom's taken. You're going to die. It actually says in chapter 28, verse 20, that Saul, while he's at Endor, had no strength. And yet David is strengthened in the Lord his God. You see the contrast. There's a man by the name of Andrew Bonar. He's a free church pastor of Scotland years ago, October 15th, 1864. He wrote in his diary of his grievous wound. He called it a wound, W-O-U-N-D. Isabella, his wife of 17 years, died apparently of complications following childbirth. He wrote on the day of her death that he'd been meditating upon the scripture because he he was reading the scriptures between dinner and tea and he's reading and he's studying and and he's meditating on Nahum chapter one, verse seven. It says this, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. That's his meditation verse. That's the promise that he had. And Bonar adds this, little did I know, or little did I think how I would need it half an hour later. He never forgot Isabella's death. Again, again, he mentioned it in his memoirs, in his entries. He never forgot Nahum chapter one, verse seven. Why did he mention it? In the diary, over and over again, because he was strengthened. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It was the promise of God's word, the affirmation of God's character that kept him steady. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You face disaster, you face trials, you face difficulties, and, 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 you, and you're, you're, you're looking at the word of God, you're reading the word of God, you're, you're combing the scripture, and then that verse just speaks like living water. I, that's for me. That I'm standing on. He strengthened himself in the Lord. By the promises of God. Look, he strengthened himself in the Lord by the purposes of God, the plan of God. He got the word of God and the will of God. Look at what it says. David's not going to go to the Philistines. Hey, I need some help. I'm going to attack Amalekite. You guys help me out. David's not going to go to Israel. He can't do that because Saul is still king. But David can reach up and say, God, I need your help. Look at verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band, this army that did this to my, my country, my, my place, my home? Shall I overtake them? Should I pursue, Lord? Am I going to take them? And the Lord answered him. Look what it says. Pursue. That's imperative. That's a command. Pursue. Look at a double emphatic promise. For you shall surely overtake. You shall surely rescue. 
Abiathar's call, remember the ephod, the, the uh, high priest would wear that robe inside, at the breast, inside the breastplate. There was either uh, some sort of like dice or, or stones or something. It was an approved way in which God would show and reveal himself in the Old Testament. Okay, he, in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision of the Lord is for the, the church had a Bible and the New Testament and the pouring out of his spirit on Pentecost. It was an approved way. And David says, get Abiathar, let me find out. I'm going to inquire of God. What's interesting is David has not, since chapter 23, sought the will of God. It's been a while. It hasn't been since chapter 26 that he even mentions the name of the Lord. As in often the case, David's tragedy, his, his, his difficulty, his disaster, turns his heart toward the Lord. Is David, no doubt David's faith in the divine will, delivered by the divine word, that helped him be strengthened in the Lord. Again, notice the sharp contrast between David and Saul. During a time of great distress, both men sought supernatural help. David is seeking the Lord. A, 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 an approved, gracious way in which you seek the wisdom and guidance of God. Yet Saul, he is violating the law of God, seeking a medium. David is given the promise of kingship. Saul is given the promise of destruction. You will die tomorrow. Now listen. King David sees the disaster, and in his distress, he turns his direction to the Lord and then decides to follow the command of God. That's a principle we could take. When, when we have disaster, we have trouble, when we have disaster strike and we are in distress, where our decision is to, to turn to the Lord, and then we must make a decision to follow the command of God. Look what it says. Verse 9, the defeated enemy. So David set out. And with 600 men. And they came to the brook of Besor. And, and those who were left behind, they stayed there. Verse 10, David pursued. And he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind. Who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. Now, I don't have it up there. I just read it to you. That's verse 9 and 10. I don't want to just gloss over this. Okay, let me, let me, just, let me just reiterate. David believed the promise of God. David inquired in the plan and purpose of God and did what? Complain? Did he try to get out of it? Did he become too frightened and, 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 and stabilized to move or to act on God's word and God's will? No. He promptly obeyed. He promptly here we see David living out his, his faith in God. Faith requires a human response, although it is enabled by God, Ephesians 2a, and even though God graciously makes faith possible, it's a gift of God, it still needs our response by grace to God. James chapter 1, be doers of the word, not hearers only, by deceiving yourself. If you're, if you're not doing it and only hearing it, you're deceiving yourself. And I believe, I really believe this, that the burning down of Ziklag and this, the, the, the carrying off of David's family has now developed into the loving discipline of the Lord, teaching David to trust. But we're talking about David's been in the wilderness. He's been squeezed. He's been learning both by failure and success what it means to be the king. And now 
he's getting some sense knocked into him. Have you ever had some sense knocked into you? Don't raise your hand. Everybody would. <laughs> right? And disaster has a way of, of you know, you're praying 10 minutes a day. Two years. And all of a sudden, disaster strikes. You're praying constantly. I know you've all been there. I've been there. And God takes us through that disaster and brings us to that simple crying out again, a simple trust in God. And God is, is disciplining us in love to bring us back to him. So you have obedience to God. Then comes providence. We've been seeing providence all over. The providence of God. Let me just take two minutes, just explain. We, we talk about it, but I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. What is the providence of God? First, uh, excuse me, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all of my purposes. Earlier, God used the Philistines, the pagans, the lords of the, of the Philistine army, to release David from his conundrum, even though David's like, hey, I didn't, what did I do? I didn't do anything wrong. Don't you trust me? It's like, shut up, David, man. You're getting out of this. Just go about your merry way. Otherwise, you're going to be in a problem, right? And that was God's amazing intervention, God's providence. But we tend to say when good things happen, isn't God's providence good? And we should. But you know, providence is good even when bad things happen because we believe that God is in control. We believe that God is sovereign, that God does not allow anything to happen to us outside his sovereign will, even dark things, even terrible things, even distressing things, God is in control. God's sovereign. Sovereignty means that God is the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. God has the right. God has the authority. God has the right and authority to govern all things for his own wise and holy purposes. Oh, Pastor Lou, where do you find that? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that's God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when we speak of providence, we're talking about the ways in which God continuously works his activity by which he preserves, provides, rules, and manages his creations, working all things out in the wise and eternal plans and purposes that he intended for his glory and for our good. All things, even stupid, dumb, sinful things that we do. Jerry Bridges defines providence this way. Constant care for and is the absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Let me give you another quote. John Piper wrote a book, Suffering the Sovereignty of God. And in it, he quotes Mark uh, Talbot. He says this, God has sovereignly ordained from before the world began everything that happens in our world, but in, no, but in a way that does no violence to creation's secondary causes and in a way that does not take away from human freedom or responsibility. Limited freedom, but responsibility. The God, listen, what he's saying is the God of the Scripture is one who not only sees everything beforehand, but he actively brings about all that he determines. It's not an unresponsive knowledge. God does not look into the future 
as if it was on a movie screen and tries to figure out ways in which he can work his sovereign will. His knowledge of the future comes from his foreordination of whatever comes to pass, working all things out to the counsel of his will. He's saying, I can't wrap my head around human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Welcome to the club. But the Bible teaches it, I believe it. (laughs) If you could figure it out, you'd be God, and you're not, just so you know. Westminster Confession says this, uh, book five, number one. God, the the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his glory, his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God in eternity past in the counsel of his will, ordained everything. He's not, he's, not, he's not, in no sense, he's the author of sin. And no, we're not removed from human responsibility. But God is sovereign. He's working all things. God in his providential, his sovereign providential care of David, stepped in and had the five lords say, we don't want him so that David could flee. That was the providence of God. The providence of God also when David got to Ziklag and seen the whole place burned down, God wasn't asleep. God was working his sovereign providential care over David. Look at verse 11. God is working in and through an abandoned Egyptian. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in open country. Like, this ain't Walmart. This is open country in the middle of nowhere. Like, hey, there's a guy out there. Like, really? In the middle of the desert, they find a guy. He's an Egyptian. He's not eating. He's not drinking. Hasn't eaten, drinking in three days. They give him, verse 12, some cake and figs, raisins. His spirit revived. He has not eaten in three days. Verse 13. And David says to him, who are you? Who do you belong to? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant of the Malachite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. I just happened to be in the desert. We, verse 14, implicates himself, we made a raid against the Negev and the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev and Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. That got his attention. Really? And David said to him, huh, okay. Will you take me down to this army, to this band? And he said, yeah, all right, under one condition, swear to me by your God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master because if I take you, I'm in trouble, right? I'll take you. So obviously David said, okay. Now remember, when, when there's rage going on and these military people are attacking cities and burning it to the ground, they don't leave a calling card. It's like, hey, if you, you, know, if you got any questions, you can find this here, right? It doesn't work that way. God's providence is essential. We need to grasp that the discovery of this Egyptian is not an, an optional amenity, but an absolute necessity. The Egyptian that was kicked to the curb, left to die, disregarded as worthless, God takes and uses to tell David where he can find those who raided his city, which God promised to pursue, and you'll take them out. And God provides that. It seems like such a little providence, one little old guy. Finding this feeble Egyptian was little, but it made a big difference. Obedience, providence, 
and deliverance. David takes everything back, verse 16. And when he had taken him down, and when he had taken him down, Behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing and having a ball because of all the great spoil that it had taken from the land of Egypt and from the land of Judah. Right? So they're partying. It's, it, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning. They're all drunk, having a ball. They're not ready to fight anyone. It's a good time to strike. David, verse 17, struck them down at twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them except 400 men. So there must have been a lot more than 400. David only got 400. They mounted camels and they fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his wives. Nothing was missing. Small or great, daughters, spoiler, anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Verse 20. David also captured all the flocks and the herds and the people and drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Look what the narrator is doing. Again, contrast to what's going on with Saul, who's going to die. It says David struck him. David recovered. David rescued. David brought it back. David captured. David spoiled. See what's happening? The narrator describes David's success in a very emphatic term. God has delivered, rescued by the hand of David. He's the new king. Now he's gotten all kinds of livestock, He's got all kinds, he's got his people back, and now it's time to divide the spoils. Look at verse 21. Then David, verse 21, came, right, he leaves, comes to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow, David and, and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people with them. So the 400 men are now meeting with the 200 men. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them, the Hebrew word shalom, peace. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David, part of his own 400, said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Except they could have his wife. You want your wife and kids? You can have them. I don't want your kids. I'm not looking for another wife. So you can take your wife and kids and you may go. And just for the record, the word worthless, we've seen that before. Nabal was worthless, Remember? Abigail's husband, before he died, he was a worthless fellow. He treated David with contempt. Saul, when he began his reign, had a bunch of worthless fellows in chapter 10 despising him and treating him, the new king, Saul, with contempt. Chapter 2, you remember Eli and his worthless sons treating the Lord and the Lord's sacrifices with contempt. And now David's men. There are some men with David treating the Lord with contempt, treating the Lord's anointed with contempt. They don't want to hear about shalom. They don't want to hear about what David has captured. And look what it says in verse 23. David responds by saying this. You shall not do so, my brothers. He calls them brothers, family. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For, all, for as his share is, who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be, who stays with the baggage, right? They shall share alike. It's not like, they're like, all right, let's put, let's, you know, we got this rent the place, we'll open up the gate, you know, we'll throw everything in, we'll wait. No, somebody had to stay back with the baggage. Their men were exhausted. And look at verse 25, David makes it a statue for all of Israel. From this day forward, from that day and from that day forward. Somebody had to watch this stuff. And notice something very important. You have your Bibles open. Look at verse 22, what the worthless men say. They said, we will not give them any of the spoil that who? We have recovered. Meanwhile, David said the spoils was what 
the Lord has given us. Verse 23, he, God, has preserved us and given into our hand the enemy that did this to our people. Family, listen, when, when, when you think your victory comes from your doing, you will not share in your spoils. Here's how you know whether your heart's been transformed or being transformed by the gospel. It is the growing of love and generosity. David recognizes the grace of God. David is highlighting the difference between religion and the gospel. And when I say religion, I'm talking about other religious protocols and practices based on works that God is somehow out there and somehow I have to reach up and I must do and do and do in order to be right with God. Whether it's Buddhism, Eightfold Path, Islam, Five Pillars, Judaism, Hinduism, one with the divine, there's a way in which I have to do in order to be right with God, but not the gospel. Not the gospel. Unlike all of the religions, religions that say, work your way up to God, Christianity says that God came down to us. That it's through grace, not works. It is through the work of Jesus, not the work of man, that God loves, forgives, accepts by the record of Jesus, by the moral perfection of Jesus, not yours. The gospel is the call of grace, not works. It is a simple truth that God accepts you not on the basis of your past, of what you have done, or what you have performed, but on the basis of what Christ has done, what Christ has performed for you. The human heart, everybody in this room, I think it was Luther said, the default mode is to work toward our salvation. I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. And when I do all this, God will love me and accept me and forgive me. That's religion. The gospel is God has already done. God has already done. He provided a perfect sacrifice, a, a, a perfect substitutionary sacrifice on my behalf. He has completed the work. He has followed the law. He has died in my place. And because of what he's already done, therefore... I respond in obedience. Big difference between the gospel and religion. Big difference between the gospel and religion. Jesus Christ, the one predicted, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who was born of a virgin, the one who lived a perfect life, taught and spoke with authority, crucified on a Roman cross, buried and three days later, rose from the dead, is our only living hope. The men in David's day, those worthless men, were working out a philosophy of works, which is impressed by what you do and what you contribute. David knew better. David knew that God had given the enemy into his hands, and all that he got came from the hands of God. That's the difference between the gospel and grace and works and religion. One will lead to worship. One will lead to idolatry. Listen, if you and I are consistently preaching the gospel to ourselves that we are we deserve wrath justice and separation from god that's what we deserve but by god's grace alone by the record of jesus alone we have now been forgiven and accepted if we continue with that we will fall on our knees adoring thanking and praising god for his grace but if you think and I think that we are bringing something to the table, we will dive into idolatry, for that is the inevitable consequences of self-sufficiency. Taking, you know, talking about the spoils that you have and your actions of self-salvation. 
Ralph Davis writes this, So grace must always be the decisive and dominating factor in the Christian's practical theology. Every Christian that has no choice, you must be a good theologian who who both speaks and lives a theology of grace. You will find it humbling, he says, but it is the only thing that will keep you from worshiping yourself, end quote. That is so true. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Verse 26 to close. Then David came to Ziklag. Divided his spoil, gave it to the 600, the 400 men, the 200 that were with him. Everyone's getting some, something. And in verse 26, he comes, he gives a part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. Here is a present for you, he says, from the spoils of the enemies of God. Verse 27, it was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and all a bunch of other cities. And in verse 31 in Hebron, it says that David gave it every place where David and his men had roamed. And some commentators say David got all these spoils, went back home, and started handing out gifts because he wanted to, you know, grease the palm a little bit. You know, soon to be king, going to be around in these different cities. Let me little give a little something to everybody. I think maybe we're living in a political climate that that probably, that may sound like, yeah, that's probably what's being done. I'm not sure. David was gracious to the Amalek, to the Egyptian. David could have told that Egyptian when he found him, listen, tell me where the people are. I'm going to cut your throat either way. Like, I'm sure there's a way to get the information and kill the Egyptian, but he didn't. He was gracious to him. David was gracious to the men who said that they shouldn't get anything. David's like, no, 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 we're giving them. We're going to be gracious. He understood grace. And I think that's what's happening here. David is dividing his spoil. He's giving it to everyone and his friends. And I think, I think the narrator of the entire Bible, God himself, wants to see this pathway that this story, this, this generosity, this grace leads us someplace. From King David's trust in God's promises and purposes, from King David's deliverance and rescue from his enemies, even the dividing of the spoil of those in need, it means to drive us to the king of kings, the greater David. His name is Jesus the Christ. When Jesus was in his hometown in Nazareth, he did what he always did. He'd go to the synagogue. they hand him a scroll, And in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, he opens up the scroll. Do you know what he reads? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, Christ, Messiah, anointed me, he's the ultimate anointed one, to proclaim good news to the poor, to the poor in spirit, to the broken. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm setting people free. Proclaim the good favor, year of the Lord's grace, his favor. Jesus sits down, says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see that? Do you see what David's pointing to? That Jesus Christ leaves the glories of heavens, comes to this broken and jacked up world, lives a perfect life, one we could never live but is required, dies a brutal substitutionary death to pay the penalty for our sin, rises from the dead, and then says, come, eternal life is yours. The spoils are yours. I've overcome the great enemy of death, sin, and Satan. But let me tell you something even more important. He's overcome the greatest enemy of our souls. That's God himself. Romans chapter five says, for while we were enemies, enemies of God, We were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Family, God's wrath against us is deserved. 
It's justified, yet on the cross, Jesus takes the wrath we deserve. He pays the price, and by grace alone, he reconciles us to the eternal, immortal, everlasting God, holy God. That is why King David is a shadow of the kind of king, the greater king, the greater son, Jesus, who destroys the barriers and gives his friends the spoils. Do you remember John 15? I call you my friends. Greater love, he says, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Do you know him that way? Do you know that he has set us free? Do you know that he released us from the grip of sin, death, and hell? Do you know that we are reconciled to a holy God who rightfully and justifiably will cast us into eternal damnation because of our sins? Now has because of Jesus, reconciled, forgiven, justified, made us right, and we have no more fear. Now, I don't know what you're going through today, but I know this, that whatever it may be, you can trust God. You can trust his promises. You can trust his plans. You can trust his purposes because of the gospel. It's not nothing you've done. It's something he's already done. Father, as we finish Worshiping as a family, we pray that, Father, you would strengthen us today, that you would encourage us today, that we rely upon your promises and the purposes and the plans of our life, no matter what we may be going through, Lord. We look at Jesus and we see that the spoils, his spoils, has been given to us by grace, by grace alone, and we praise you for that. And now we pray that, Father, our response to the grace will be one of trust in your promises and your plans for our lives. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.